Now let us read from verses 23 all the way to 32. 23 to 32. One, two, reading. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also, he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye drink this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. May God bless the reading of his word. Let us pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the night where we can gather in thy house. And Lord, we do pray that you use your word to help us to have a clear understanding of the Lord's Supper. We take it every month. And Father, we pray that we, with this understanding, Lord, we would actually partake of it with more carefulness, with more joy, with more understanding, and that we would truly benefit from the Lord's Supper. And Father, we also pray that you help us understand the errors in the Roman Catholic Church, that we are very clear and very careful. Lord, we pray for every group studying your word in the house tonight. May your Holy Spirit be our teacher. Lord, remove all tiredness, remove all distraction, and help us, O Lord, to learn much. And may your word transform our lives and the way we approach the Holy Communion. And Father, we also pray for protection of your church. And Lord, we pray for um, no distraction. We pray that we can continue to do your work and your sheep will be protected. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Now we finish up one of the questions that we did not finish earlier on. Um, if you have your old um, copy of the notes, I just printed today's one, but now we want to understand um, why the Roman Catholic Church does certain things. And if you ask, wh why do we need to learn about what the Roman Catholic Church does? Why do we bother? Why should we know? Why? The reason is very simple. The Holy Communion, or they call it the Eucharist, is one of the things that keeps the Roman Catholic Church and the Protestant Church separate. This is one area that the two big groups cannot come to agreement with yet. All right? I emphasize the word yet. So because of that, 
Um, a Christian who does not have a clear understanding what they do and why they do those things, you would over time just feel, yeah, what's the big deal? You know, let's just come back together. Right? So this is one very major area that we need to be very clear about. And so let's continue. Now, in 29.4, those of you who have the old notes, but um, if you don't have, just listen. 29.4, let me read to you. Now, private masses or receiving the sacrament by a priest or any other alone, as likewise the denial of the cup to the people, worshipping the elements and lifting them up or carrying them about for adoration and the reserving and reserving them for any pretended religious use are all contrary to the nature of the sacrament and to the institution of Christ. <clears throat> so we want to focus on this. Now this is very simple. They very rightly say that lifting up the elements, or they call it the species, and then as they move into the church with the bread on, on, a, on a pole, and then people will bow or worship it. Um, this is wrong. So they say we should never do that. Uh, we've, we've already studied that. That is idolatry. Now, in the first place, um, those elements are not supposed to be the real Christ. Okay? So, but here is one particular area. And likewise, the, the denial of the cup to the people, the, the denial of the cup um, to the people. And in, in 29.3, it also talks about they set apart these elements. So the leftover elements, they will keep it in a box or in a, in a container in the church um, or in a cupboard in the church, a very special one. I've mentioned that before. They keep it aside and later they will use that. They will use that in visitations to the sick people to give out to them um, or to use it for the next round. Right? So now, um, what does the Roman Catholic Church teach about keeping these elements aside? In the Council of Trent, Canon Number 7. So you need to read for yourself. The reason why I ask you to read for yourself is because of the second part of the question. Have their views changed today? Have their views changed today about Eucharist? It has not changed at all. All right, so Canon Number 7. This is the one up here. Canon Number 7. Now, if anyone saith, that it is not lawful for the sacred Eucharist to be reserved in the sacrarium, that is the um, thing they built to contain them, but that immediately after consecration it must necessarily be distributed amongst those present, or that it is not lawful that it be carried with honor to the sick, let him be anathema. So this teaching is taken from their official website, there are canons, right? There are there are ordinances, there are BBK teachings. It still exists today. You can easily get this from their website. It is their official stand today. So they say anathema means let him be damned forever in hell. So anyone who says that after the Eucharist to keep these things apart, to be used for the um, for the for, for, for the sick outside the church, who did not come for Holy Communion, or to be used for the next Holy Communion, um, and say we say that it is wrong, then we should be anathema. 
Why do they believe this? Because they believe those elements are really Christ. You can't throw Christ away. All right? That is why they have this kind of practices. So please know, when a Roman Catholic during evangelism say, oh no, the Roman Catholic Church have changed in their beliefs, it has not changed at all. Even those things that they tell you, oh, we believe in salvation by grace and all, it has not changed. It has a different meaning when they say that. In their website, it is still the same. These have been there for hundreds and hundreds of years. They will not change it. Okay? So, now ask the question, have you changed? Absolutely not. I want you to be very clear about that. Now, what does that tell us? That tells us that we cannot, we cannot fall for their, um, for their insistence. No, the Roman Catholic Church have changed. You don't understand. Many of the younger generations, they will tell you that. Well, they may have changed, but even when they change, they have a different view. But the teachings of the church still stands. It is still anathema. Okay? So, um, that is something we must not fall for. Sometimes you feel bad. They say, oh, but you know, all these people, they really are different. You do not judge a religion. We call them a different religion, a different faith. You do not judge a different religion and a different faith by what an individual say. Okay? You judge it by what its official teachings and its official stance are. Do you understand what I'm saying? No matter what they say. How do we go back to the Roman Catholic Church? How do churches over time, slowly but surely, soften their stand against the Roman Catholic Church? How does it happen? It is usually like that. Between friends, younger generation especially, they talk. They exchange views. And then they begin to feel that, no, they, they are really different, this generation. Then with this generation, feeling that this generation is different, they begin to feel, yes, um, the, church, the church's biblical separation from them is wrong, it's not good. Our church is too is too strict and too old-fashioned, and we're still bringing up the past. It's different now. And then from there, that generation will begin to have dialogues. And with those dialogues, they begin to um, have unofficial agreements. So, so young theo younger theologians today, you probably have heard the famous um, um, article, um, Evangelicals and Catholic Together, ECT, because of all these people, they begin to talk and they say, no, it's quite different. In fact, now we find that we are more and more the same. By their conversation, they find themselves more and more the same. So they say we should come together and sign some agreements. But please know, the official stand of the Roman Catholic Church does not change. Many of these are the, hear carefully, many of these are the ground level people trying to execute the change. They are trying to convince the upper level people, the church authorities, hey, look, we are not so different after all. You know, we are all having all these informal agreements, informal talks now. As far as the Roman Catholic Church is concerned, they are not moving. Do you understand what I'm saying? You have to be very sure in your heart they have not changed and they will not change. What they are looking for is this. You change. 
we will not change. This will be our stand. You cannot have all these agreements and talk. But the bottom line phrase is this. The bottom line phrase is, come, return to Mother Church. Return to the church that you left. We are your Mother Church. It is always us returning to them, not they changing their beliefs. All right. So the reason why, if you ask me, why am I printing all these canons for you? Canons, so old-fashioned things. They are their official stand, official teachings in their official church website as their official beliefs. All right? So no change. Please steal your hearts. Please do not feel that we are being too judgmental and we are not listening to them. We are not falling for them. It's not that we're not listening to them. All right? So that is why I'm telling you this. Okay? So please know that the Holy Communion is an area that the Christian must be very clear about. That's why we want to tackle some of those difficult verses afterwards. Now, next thing. Next thing. What does the Roman Catholics typically practice regarding the cup? All right? What do they practice typically regarding the cup? Now, typically, they would not give out the cup. Means the Roman Catholics will only come forward, I've told you before, they will only receive the bread, all right, the wafer, the round wafer, but they will not get the cup. The priest will drink, but not them. Now, is it biblical? That is the first question. Is it biblical to withhold the cup? Actually, quite easy. At least Holy Communion for me, I'm not good at handling cups. I always spill, and then Sister one of the sisters have to bring the cloth home to wash. I'm very clumsy. So no cup after this Sunday. Is it biblical? Is it biblical? Now let's turn to Matthew 14. Matthew chapter 14. Okay, verses 23. Two twenty-five. Fourteen twenty-three. Two twenty-five. Uh, can you please read, please? Begin. Ah, I'm sorry. So where's it going? <laughs> Mark 14. I'm trying to look for a particular quote. Mark 14, 23 to 25. Mark 14, 23 to 25. Okay, let's read together. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. Now, they all drank of it, all right? Turn to First um, Corinthians chapter 11, where we read earlier on.
verses 25 to 26. Alright. Reading. After the same manner also, he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. This do as oft as ye drink it. Now, remember this passage is, look at the context. Look at verse 23. This is the Apostle Paul telling the church, For I have received of the Lord that which also I deliver unto you. So, this is the Apostle Paul instituting the Lord's Supper in church. He went to the church and said, Please know, church, I received this from God and I'm instituting this into the church. And in that, he said all these things. He read what the Lord said. So is it meant only for the apostles? Is it only meant for the priests? No. The Apostle Paul was implementing it for the church and he read to the church people what Christ said. This do you all, plural, this do ye. How often? As oft as ye drink it. So this is meant for everyone who are water baptized, born again believer in the church, is meant for them, plural, to take, addressing the church. So it is the Lord's intent that all born again, water baptized believer partake of it. It is not to be held back. Now what happened was in the Council of um, Constance, the Roman Catholic Church said, well, you know, it is a custom. They just decided over time to hold back the cup. Some believe it's because they say, well, you know, some of them, you know, bread you, put, you can put safely on the tongue and it goes in. Well, you know, the cup, if it spills, then the blood of Christ is spilled on the floor. That is sacrilegious. So over time they say, they just don't give the cup. You know, it's sacrilegious. Just don't give the cup. And then it became, the custom became a law. So they began to say, yeah, let's, we just declare that now, from now onwards, we don't do that. But over time, they say, well, if you want to do that, it's okay, but we, by, by and large, don't do that anymore. It's our custom. That has, at one time, became a law. So some will practice giving the cup, um, but I think majority don't. Majority don't. Um, maybe today, I don't know. But is it right for them to just simply change it? It is not. It is meant for everyone to partake. Their, their, their rationale, when some people question, some Roman Catholics question, well, then I am not taking the full Holy Communion. Can I be saved? Can I be saved? I can't take the full Holy Communion. What do you think their answer was? Their answer is, well, you know, the bread has turned into the flesh of Christ, right? Because if turned into the flesh of Christ, flesh has blood inside. So it's inside already. So don't worry. You're taking the full thing. You're saved. Go away. Alright? So all these are human ideas, human traditions. Um, they have not changed at all. Now, next thing. What's the next question? No. So, is it biblical? No. And we've already read those scriptures. It is not biblical. The Lord intended for every, every one of us um, to partake of it. Now, now 29.5 and 6, question number 3. Like, okay, now we read question uh, 29.5. Let's read that. 
Okay, 29.5. One, two, reading. The outward elements in this sacrament duly set apart to the users ordained by Christ have such relation to him crucified as that truly, yet sacramentally only, they are sometimes called by the name of the things they represent, to wit, the body and blood of Christ. Albeit, in substance and nature, they still remain truly and only bread and wine, as they were before. All right, what is this? The Westminster divines had to address this problem. And they wrote all this to make sure that biblically we have the right understanding. They're saying this, the outward element means the cup, the bread and the cup. The outward element, they are set apart to the users ordained by Christ. In other words, when you see the elements on the table, the cup and the, 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 the bread. God did say you must use these things. Can I use um, can I use rice and and something else? Rice and curry. Alright? We, we will give rice around and then drink the curry juice, curry soup. Can we do that? Christ said it's ordained. You use this. Alright? These are the elements to be used. So we cannot change that. But the thing is this. These things have a relation to Christ and his sacrifice and they are called his body and his blood. All right, so the question is this, what are the uses Christ set apart for each of these elements? What are the uses? One, the bread is meant to be set apart to represent his body. All right? That's the use. You cannot use rice to represent his body. Christ say is the is the bread, broken bread. All right? It must be that kind of thing. And then the other is the, the, the cup, the juice, is supposed to represent his blood. So God says, use these items to represent my body and my blood. All right? So these are the elements set apart for that. Now, why is it important to, um, for them, so, it was so important that they need to call this out and deal with it. Now, the next question, question number four. So first thing you must know, it's meant for that. By the way, sometimes I hear people argue. You know, Bible translations, they say, you know, mm, um, in China, they won't understand bread. You know, Christ broke bread, Christ uh, fed bread to the 5,000, so they won't understand um, and it is not good that um, even in the English Bible to translate it as bread, we should translate it as, especially for the Chinese, we eat rice, we don't eat bread, all right? So it's a trans we should translate it into rice. Do you think we should do that? It's very dangerous because there are meanings to what it meant back then. All right? And that is what they really use. So that there are significance, um, unleavened bread and all that. It has many things behind that. There are spiritual lessons, um, although they are physical things. God does teach spiritual things. 
um, through leaven, unleavened, talking about bread. Do you have leavened rice? Unleavened rice? I think you can't teach that concept. Right? So some of these things, um, uh, translations should be as literal as possible. That's what I want to say. Right? So the elements are important. God says these are the elements. Question number four. Now, is Christ, is Christ truly present in the elements? Now, that is the question. Because Christ said, now this is my body. This is my blood. Christ attached a very um, close connection between his body and his blood to these elements. This is my body. This is the New Testament in my blood. All right? So he attached a very um, intimate link to it. That's what they're trying to say in, in point number five. They are set apart by Christ, is very closely linked to his broken body and his shed blood, but it is only sacramentally linked. All right? Only sacramentally linked. This is going to link to question number six, uh, to, the, to item six, all right? But they want to address this first. It is only a sacramental link. Is it truly present? Right? So it says they are sometimes called by the name. They think that by the name of the things they represent, they represent the body and the blood. So, for example, during Holy Communion, when we give you the, the bread, the broken wafers, and say, this is the body of Christ. All right? And we read, take it, this is my body. We call those things body. We call those things the blood of Christ. We actually call them that. It is important that we call them that. Christ intended when we look at the cup, when we look at the bread, we do think of his body and his blood. That's why we, we look at it and we call it blood and bread. But blood and body of Christ. We literally call it that. Like, um, well, will I call this pointer? Will I call this pointer bone? Bone. Bone. I won't. We will call it pointer. But when it comes to these elements, we actually call them. This is the body of Christ. This is the blood of Christ. The Roman Catholics swing to one extreme. The Christians cannot swing to the other extreme and just regard this as, oh, biscuit. Just bread, biscuit. Unleavened, yeah. Uh, juice. What brand juice is this? I don't know. Right? We should not, during Holy Communion, just regard them simply as 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 wafers coming around and as just um, ribena coming around. We must actually regard it as the body and the blood of Christ. All right? So this is one thing we must come to the Lord's table with that, um, with that attachment of what those items are to the body and the blood of Christ. So this is important because Christ set it apart and called it that. Now, look at point number five. But it says, but please know, the Christian must approach the cup and the bread like as if it's the blood and the body of Christ. But it says, albeit, now albeit means though, uh, though every time you read King James, albeit means though, though in, sub, in substance and nature they still remain truly only bread and wine, as they were before. No change. From the time we took it out of the cupboard, from the time it reached you, from the time you drink it, or eat it, it is still really wafer, really juice. No change. 
in the nature of it. But the Christian should not just because, well, this thing didn't change. It's just what someone baked and what someone bought from, from Woolworth. We should not approach it that way. We should really be thinking about this is the body and this is the blood of Christ. All right? So that is one thing we should approach. We should not be distracted and just look at these elements as, as elements. That's all. So that is one thing that the Westminster Divines want us to remember. Because they are going to deal in question in point number six with, with the opposite end. All right? With the opposite end. Now, what is the opposite end? Well, well, let's answer question four first. Is Christ truly present in the elements? Um, I think we'll reserve that for later. Now, why do we call it body and blood of Christ? Because really Christ wants us to think like that. Christ wants us to view these items as sacramentally his body and his blood. Now, how is Christ present and all that? We cover in the, in the question number seven, I think. So let's move on first. All right, question number um, five. Question number five. Now let's read item six. All right, please read item six. Um, one, two, reading. That the doctrine which maintains a change of the substance of bread and wine into the substance of Christ's body and blood, commonly called transubstantiation, by the consecration of a priest or by any other way, is repugnant not only to scripture alone, but even to common sense and reason, overthroweth the nature of the sacrament, and has been and is the cause of manifold superstitions, yea, of gross idolatries. All right, what is he saying? First, he introduces transubstantiation. Right, so some of you may not know what it is. Now, what is transubstantiation? It's described here. Transubstantiation is... The priests take the elements, or they call it the species. The priest consecrates it. He says some prayer over it. And then transubstantiation is when the priest consecrate these elements, these elements turns into, the bread turns into the body, the actual body of Christ. And the blood and the cup into the, the, the juice, into the actual blood of Christ. Has this change, all right? This absolutely has not changed at all. Okay. Let's read Canon number one, all right? Canon number one, shall we read together? If anyone denieth that in the sacrament of the most holy Eucharist, are contained truly, really, and substantially the body and the blood together with the soul and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ, and consequently the whole Christ, but saith that he is only therein as, a, as in a sign or in a figure of virtue. Let him be anathema. All right? So has this changed? Not at all. This, I just took it from the website. Every time I take it from the website when I teach things like that, I wonder if it changes. It has not changed for hundreds of years. It's not going to change. All right? So they still say, if you say that these elements did not turn into the actual body and blood of Christ physically, then let you be anathema. 
Now, look at what the rest means. So that's transubstantiation, right? So be clear. They call it the Eucharist. The Holy Communion is called the Eucharist in the Roman Catholic Church. So when you say Eucharist, that is what it is. In the Eucharist, transubstantiation occurs. Now, look at what the Westminster Divines um, say. It is repugnant to Scripture. Means Scripture does not teach it. It is a very, very terrible and very sinful and um, perverted teaching. It is not in Scripture. You put Scripture to it, it's repugnant. And it says, not only repugnant to Scriptures alone, but even to common sense and reason. <laughs> what do you think they mean? Hannah, you were nodding your head. What do you think they mean? It's not, I mean, even you show scriptures, it's already, re, it is repugnant. But to common sense and reason, it is, it is repugnant. What do, what do you think they mean, the, the Westminster divines? It's so out of the ordinary, but why is it repugnant to common sense and reason? Bread and wine doesn't become fashion, but they believe it does. You see, to them, they believe it does. Why do you feel it's repugnant to common sense and reason? How? It, why? To common sense and reason. Why are you laughing, young? Why? Eating your God, number one, right? Number one, it is eating your God. Cannibalism. Which religion eats their God? Only us. Only Roman Catholics eat their gods. To them, it's, it's, it's repugnant. Well, besides that, why is it repugnant to common sense? All right, Howard. Tonight, Caleb takes, um, takes, takes the Holy Communion wafer. He found one on the table. He said, Daddy, look, look. This is a piece of flesh. Daddy, really? Then you look at it. What flesh? It's a wafer. No, no, there you see, flesh, flesh, right? What would you say? Are you stupid? <laughs> it is a biscuit, right? Common sense. Even a child will not do that. No child will take up a piece of bread and go, Daddy, this is really flesh. You know, look, at it, look at it wobbling. What they mean is, it is still bread. It is still juice. No matter how you put it under the, under, under the microscope, chemically, physically, it is still bread. It is still juice. Common sense. They say this is a, a, a joke to the rest of the world when Christians claim that this is flesh. This is blood. Hey, make sure you don't drop it. Let's keep it because it has turned into flesh. Everybody look at it. It's biscuit. It's biscuit. It's rabina. No, flesh. It is, to common sense and reason, it is stupidity. Alright? Now, unless it really turns, it really turns. Every week it turns. Well, they have all this, they have a story. Well, they claim that it's true. Rarely one piece, they, they found some of it on the floor. Then they went to test it. It's really flesh. It's really blood, but it doesn't last very long. Right, so if it is true, then it should happen every week. It doesn't happen. Alright? So, so what they're saying is just to common sense, you can, you can keep saying and telling people it is blood, it is what, but it is not. 
Alright, so it is just foolish. So that's what they're saying. Yeah, and like, like one of you said, it doesn't turn into that. No matter what chant you put on it, there's no such thing. These things don't happen. Now, next. So, um, but, alright, so he says, now he overthroweth the nature of the sacrament. So number one, it is anti-scripture. So to answer this question, why is it anti-scripture? Did not Christ say, and did not we read in 1 Corinthians 11, this is my blood. And this is my body. This cup is, the New Testament in my blood. Is, is, right? Is, this is my body. This is my blood. This is. So how can you deny it? Christ said, is what? How do you answer that? Sing Yun. How do you answer that? Your Roman Catholic friend says, Sing Yun. Sing Yun. They don't mix it up like me. Sing Yun. Christ said, This is my body, which is broken for you. Why do you keep denying that it is not? No, Christ said, This is my body. Why? It's terrible of you to say this is representative. Are you calling Christ a liar? This is my body, which is broken for you. Your pastor reads it every, every, every month. How can you say this is not Christ's body? How can you say this is only representative? Don't you believe in Jesus? You must be not a, not a Christian. You don't believe in Jesus' words. How do you answer? Mabel. For remembrance, very good. Number one, you say for remembrance. But does it mean every time, besides, before we come to that, Christ, does Christ say, I am the door? I am the vine. So every door you see, oh, Christ. Every, every great vine you say, oh, Christ. I am. Christ said, I am, no? How can you say Christ is not a door? How can you say that? So, representative. All right? The fact that Christ said, in remembrance of me, you know it's representative. Now, do you understand why now the Westminster Divine still tell us, you, you must not go to the point and say, this is simply cup, this is simply juice, and what? We study afterwards, Christ meant for us to think of his body and his blood. Maybe I'll ask you, um, Vincent, what is the shape of the wafer? Rectangle. Can you, can you tell what juice it is? What brand? No. What color is the wafer? White. Alright, so good. I'm glad you, you know it's not yellow. <laughs> now my point is this. We should not keep looking at the thing and say, oh, this, this corner is a bit sharp this week. Alright, this, hey, this week I got so little of juice. You know, next time I'm going to stick the cup with the more juice. The point is, we don't want to go to the extreme, oh, this is the body of Christ, better don't drop it. But we also do not want to come to a point where we take this without a concentration on the body and the blood of Christ. All right? So that is the point that they're trying to point out, that they want us to think about during Holy Communion. But come back to them, to the Roman Catholics. So my question is, now, why is it erroneous? Because this is doesn't mean it turns into that. 
And the other thing is, Christ said, this do in remembrance of me. Why would Christ say in remembrance of me if it, has really, it is really him? It means I'm here. What to remember? I'm here. You're going to eat me. All right? This is not just a remembrance. This is me present and you're eating me. All right? So scripture is repugnant to scripture because scripture says that it is in remembrance. It is representative of his body and his blood. That's all. Now, what does it lead to? What do you think it leads to? It leads to idolatry, correct? It leads to them worshipping the wafer when it comes in. That is the problem. Now, please know one thing about um, Satan's wiles. The doctrine any erroneous doctrines, whether it's very stark, whether it's mildly erroneous, just, just deviate things somewhat, will eventually lead to serious errors, idolatry especially. It is always like that. Satan is very patient. Now you just say, oh, it's a body and what, but one day I intend for you all to worship it. It will lead to that. Because if it is the body of Christ, then we should worship it, right? Christ is coming, you know, Christ is being carried around, being moved around. We should make sure we worship him. It will always lead to that. That is why, remember, we studied about Joshua. ATMs? Where's A? Ellen, what's A? Ellen. A? All. All. What is T? Huh? To the dot. To the dot means don't turn left, don't turn right. Why did God tell Joshua, don't even turn left or right, follow it to the dot? Totally. Because deviation, even if it sounds good, sounds useful for us, deviations, you know, how to draw this, huh? You know, deviation? So if you start at this point, God said just, to the dot, all right? To the dot. Just keep following zero degrees, right? Remember your ATM pin code? Zero degrees. Don't deviate. But if you have slight deviation in the beginning, slight deviation, I expand out. Slight deviation is how many degrees? I don't know, maybe 10 degrees, right? But over time, you see this distance, the deviation will go. By here, a small deviation in the beginning, by the time you move on, is going to be a major problem. That's why God says, stay at zero degrees. This doctrine of, wow, you know, Christ said it turned into body and blood, just that. And over time, it turned into idolatry. That is what happened to them. All right? So, it is inevitable if it is the body, we have to worship it. Then the last question, why is it so powerful for the Roman Catholic Church? Why is this doctrine of transubstantiation so powerful? Pay, why do you think it's so powerful for them? Give the priest the power, right? The priests have the power to turn bread into the body of 
God. The priest becomes very powerful. But what is even more powerful? The church becomes very powerful because where does the priest work? The priest work for the Roman Catholic Church. Only the priest can turn this bread into the body of their God. So now the church becomes very, very powerful. You can only get to eat your God in the Roman Catholic Church because only the priest can turn it into the body of Christ. So over time, it became extremely powerful. Do you know why then kings are afraid of the Roman Catholic Church? Nations are afraid of the Roman Catholic Church? Because the people feel that without the Roman Catholic Church, we cannot be saved because only they can feed us the body of Christ. And therefore, we will always support the church. Don't you dare attack our church. You attack our church, we lose our salvation. That's why kings were also afraid of the Roman Catholic Church. Their false doctrines became very powerful. Right? And it controls the hearts and the mind of the people. I dare not leave the Roman Catholic Church because without them, without the whole Eucharist, I can't be saved. We studied earlier. They say that the Eucharist is necessary for salvation. All right, so understand the power of Eucharist for them. I believe there are things that they may be willing to give and take and compromise with the Protestants to get us back. This is one thing they will never change. This is where their power base lies, one of their power bases. All right, so that's why we have to understand this clearly. Now, next, um, ah, quickly. Question number six. Now, this is the part. John 6 is what they use to very aggressively and strongly substantiate their stand that it does turn into the body and the blood of Christ. So, um, some of you may know, some of you may not know. But you better be able to defend it very clearly. John 6, 52 to 58. Let's read John 6, 52 to 58. Okay, let's read together. Now you imagine, all right? You imagine you are now having a conversation with a Roman Catholic, or you're beginning to doubt church's teaching. Maybe the Roman Catholics are right. Because when I read this, it really sounds like they're right, all right? So you have this thought. And ask yourself, when you're reading this, how are you going to defend um, God's truth? 52 to 58 reading. The Jews therefore strove... Okay, number, uh, sorry, I'm sorry. Let's read from 51 onwards. 51. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. The Jews therefore strove among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man, and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. Whoso eateth my flesh, and drinketh my blood, hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my body is blood, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh, and drinketh my blood, dwelleth in me, and I in him. 
As the living Father hath sent me, and I live by the Father, so he that eateth me, even he shall live by me. This is the bread, this is that bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers did eat manna, and are dead. He that eateth of this bread shall live forever. Alright, so some of you may, um, may know the answer, but here is their um, very strong supporting verse. Alright, so I read some of their writings. Um, they are very strong about this. They say, you know, you, you really can't deny this. In fact, you look at verse 52, right, 51. It said, We Roman Catholics already said, you must eat Christ. Right? There's no other way to think about it because Christ say that um, in verse 53, you must eat my flesh, you must drink my blood. Christ say that, um, verse 55, my flesh is meat indeed, my blood is drink indeed. Now he said all these things. And he said, you Protestants are like the Jews in verse 52. When, when Christ say that, we must eat his flesh, drink his blood, you are like the Jews. You strove among yourself. How can this man give, his, give us his flesh to eat? Or you, say, oh, you see, Christ say, um, there were unbelievers like you Protestants. How can we eat Christ's flesh? You know, Christ did want us to eat his flesh and drink his blood. So how are you going to explain this? How are you going to explain this? Because it's repeated so many times, it's difficult for you to argue. Right? Verse 56, He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood, dwell in me and I in him. Are you a Christian? You dwell in Christ, right? Then you must eat his flesh, drink his blood. That's why the Holy Communion, we are, when it comes to the Eucharist, we are correct. You are wrong. How are you going to answer that? Wait, let me see. Um, let me try somebody who... Thomas, you want to try? <laughs> Sounds, sounds very logical, right? Christ, did Christ ask us to eat his flesh and drink his blood? Figurative speech. But how can you say that? Because he said very clearly in verse 55, there's nothing figurative about this. For my flesh is meat indeed, my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood cannot be figurative, right? It has to be literal, right? Quite difficult, isn't it? Yeah, quite difficult. So how? Rowena, you want to try? Rowena's here, right? Alright, I guess. Have to change? Change, change sounds like it's supporting them again. <laughs> So, so this is real, but then is represent, but now is representation. Uh, this is before. This is way before. Uh, so you said now it's real, but later is a reminder. But then, but even before that, they didn't eat his flesh or drink his blood. Yeah, so it's difficult, right? Difficult. Phyllis, you want to try? Now, please know this. 
I repeat, this Eucharist is one area that we are, the, the Protestants who want very much to go back to them because of this Eucharist thing, the Protestants who want to go back still can't go back. All right? And if, we, if you yourself can't defend this, you are on very shaky ground yourself. Because one day you say, yeah, actually, it sounds right. All right? So I'm going to the church um, down the road and join them and go back to the Roman Catholic Church. So you must be able to defend this. What do you think? Ah, Adrian. Adrian, welcome back. What do you think? One day your child grow up. Daddy, I read the Bible last night. This is quite scary, Daddy. Jesus asked us to eat his flesh and drink his blood. And my Roman Catholic friends say I should do that. How? Doesn't make sense. Oh no, Daddy, how can you say that Jesus doesn't make sense? Again, <laughs> difficult, right? Now, so let's be clear what Jesus means, all right? And write it down and make it um, um, engraved in your heart once and for all. When I say, whenever you are in doubt, and whenever you're in doubt of any passage, what should you do? Huh? Say again, Sujin. Use scripture to interpret scripture. Alright, so what does it mean scripture to interpret scripture? Alright, use the clear. So clear to explain the less clear. Okay, good. And how do you begin to do that? How do you, so you're speaking generally still. Scripture to insert scripture clear to getting better, clear, clear passages to explain the less clear. But we use right. What's the first C? Context. Now recently someone struggled with a passage and kept going wrong. I said, You go back and try again. And came back still wrong. Go back, try again, came back still wrong. I said, just do what we have been trying to teach you to do in DHW all the time. What's the first thing you do in DHW? What statement? Topical statement. The topical statement is actually your context. Understand that. All right? So if you don't know, all right, this passage is very difficult. How? First, context. Context is your topical statement. What is the context? You read again and again. Let me ask you. You have to write a topical statement now. What is the context? What is Christ? Context means what is Christ talking about here? Okay, welcome back, Cheryl. What is Christ talking about here? How is Singapore food changing your mind? The context is bread of life. Okay, so context is bread of life. But what exactly, specific that passage that we are struggling with. So don't go so far back as bread of life yet. Well, he did say I'm the bread of life, yes. What exactly is the context? Salvation. Salvation. Wow. Through Christ. Very specific. <clears throat> Not just salvation, but <clears throat> salvation through Christ. The sharper... Wait. 
Correct, right? Salvation through specific. <laughs> this is very specific. I write what I say. <laughs> it's very dangerous. If I'm thinking of my bank pin code, I just write it on. <laughs> zero, zero, zero. <laughs> Salvation through Christ. The more accurate your, your topical statement or your contact statement is, the more you will be online. So after three, four times, this person went back and really practiced what? Spot on. The answer exactly right. All right? So this is a good way. It's a very biblical way to use scripture, to interpret scripture, clear for the less clear. Now, why do you say salvation? Why do you say salvation? Why so many things to talk about? I thought you'd be talking about this talk about blood and body. Why do you say salvation? How he's going to be the savior? How do you know that? Which verse? Now, please, oh, you, can, you can be so accurate, but you don't know which verse. Which verse? Say again. 37. Now, don't go so far back. Go exactly just where we are at, because this is a difficult passage. Now, let's look straight away. Look at verse 51. We read from verse 51, right? Do you see the word live forever? His whole point is, why do you want to eat bread and drink blood? What do you want to eat and drink? He said to live, correct? To live. The context is to live. We'll live forever. You look at verse 51, you will say live forever. Alright? And then verse 53. Except you eat and drink my flesh, you have no life. It's about living. And then you look at verse 54. Now he becomes more specific. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood. Why is he talking about eating and drinking his flesh? Again, the context. What he's trying to get across is eternal life. Right? Eternal life. And then you look at um, verse 57. He shall live because of me. It's always about live. And then verse 58. Shall live forever. Right? So you can't run away. The context is about salvation. The context is about living forever. And he used the, the word eternal life. So context. And eternal life through who? Right? So very specific. It is eating and drinking him. Right? So it must be through Christ. So this is a very accurate topical statement. Very accurate context statement. Now, then you have to now trace. Alright? Um... Consistency. Correct? The next thing is consistency. Consistence. Consistency. Alright? Consistency. Whenever you are doubt, look for consistency. You can't take one verse. Um, like some people, they are struggling and getting really down the wrong track. Is They take one verse and say, I bite on this and this is what it means. You look at this verse. This is what it means. This is how you become a cult. This is how the Roman Catholics become but they are. You take one verse and you bite on it. So they take one verse and bite on it. Now, in order to really now understand, eat and drink his blood. Alright, so Thomas, you look. Verse 56, uh, verse 55. My flesh is meat. He eat my flesh and drink my blood, dwell in me. So you take this verse and then they bite on it. 
The only way out of this is take one step back and look for consistency. Consistency also is a circle. Your nearest consistency first. Sometimes you don't have to jump to the next book. First you have the context. Now, what to find that is consistent? Consistent means you're comparing. Am I right? You're comparing. So now, first of all, he talked about eat and drink. Now, this, is this the issue? Eat and drink? It is the issue. Alright? Then there is the issue of flesh and blood. Now the question for, to check consistency is, what does eat and drink, his flesh and blood, mean consistently in this passage alone? We've got the context already. The context is about salvation. Now, what is eat and drink, what is flesh and blood, in this passage alone, what is it consistent with? So, now what's the meaning? Alright, what's the meaning of eat and drink? So, who can find out the meaning? Now I give you a clue. You want consistency? You have to move further back now. You have to widen, correct? You have to widen a bit now. So you widen all the way to the beginning of the conversation. That is the safest way. Alright? So the beginning of this conversation um, starts from verse 27. Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for the meat which endureth unto everlasting life. See? The context is always about salvation. Which the Son of Man shall give unto him, uh, unto you, for him hath God the Father sealed. And then they ask. So they want to know how to be saved. They ask. They understood the context. What shall we do that we might work the works of God? Then Jesus says, answer them to them. All right, so I don't tell you anymore. You read it for yourself. I give you three minutes. All right, so from here until now, this is the opening context and consistency. You look for what it means to eat and drink the flesh and the blood of Christ. What does it mean? Okay. So, what's the first answer, Benedict? Or oh, Benedict knows because he attended BBK. Uh, who did not attend BBK? Thomas. <laughs> now you have incentive to attend BBK. What do you think eat and drink to be... Cons so Christ is talking. We cannot contradict Christ. So Christ will always be consistent with his words, right? So what is eat and drink consistent with? What Christ said. What is the meaning of eat and drink? Okay, we, we look here. Huh? Not enough time, so we go. Now, Christ said, anyone eat and drink, eat and drink his flesh, will have what life? Eternal or everlasting life, correct? So we have to be consistent with the whole passage. Look here in, from verse 50, verse 28 onwards, when does Christ mention everlasting life or eternal life or have life? You just trace those, then you'll be consistent. Now look at verse Let's start with verse 32. Well, verse 27 first. First he says, now look for, go and get meat that will give you everlasting life. That is the beginning. What is the meat that will give everlasting life? Christ say, he is the bread of life. Correct? So he's the bread of life. So, he's the bread of life. Now, next you look at verse 32. 
32, he says, Moses gave you bread from heaven. My father gave you true bread from heaven. Now, this is true bread. Then he explains further. Look at verse 33. Now he says, For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. Now he begins. This is about bread that gives life. Alright, so look here. He's talking about life. He says he's the bread. He's the bread of life. He's the bread that gives life. Then he explains further. Now look at, he said, now you keep wanting to eat bread. Now let me tell you about this bread. You look at verse 35. Verse 35 Let's read together. And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. Ah, our first clue. Eat to be not hungry, drink to be not thirsty. Correct? So what is consistency? Um, okay, quickly. Howard, what is eat? Not to be hungry. In verse 35. Verse 35. Yeah, Howard, verse 35. What is eat? You, uh, too tired today. All right, just follow me, all right? Follow me. Christ said, He eat me and drink me will have everlasting life, correct? Now you look at verse, stare at verse 35. He that, not to be hungry is to eat, right? And not to be hungry is to come, correct? He that come to me shall not hunger. What about drink? He that believe shall never thirst. Understand? Now you're checking consistency. Eat is not hungry, he is come. Drink is not thirsty, is belief. Then you go further. Verse um, 40. Let's go to verse 40. He makes it clearer. And this is the will of him that sent me, and everyone which seeth the Son and believe on him may have everlasting life. Alright, so look up here. He say, what will give you everlasting life? Believe. Believe will give you everlasting life, correct? Okay? So, and then now, we come to our key verses. That he here say, verse 48, verse 48, I am the bread of life. Now, verse 49, he say, your fathers, they eat physical food, they're dead. Now, I am the one, verse 50, the bread which come from heaven. If any man eat, eat of me. If anyone eat me, will not die. So, look up here. If anyone eat me, will not die. Eat, will not die, means have, eat will have everlasting life. So, eat means what? Alex, it means what? It means come to him, but he now explains it in a broader sense. If you eat me, you won't have you will have everlasting life. So if you link this, it means belief. Because if you believe, you have everlasting life. Correct? Now you look further. He explains further. And now he says, verse 51: if any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread I will give is my flesh which I will give for the life of the world. Now, look up here. Christ said he will give his flesh, means he will die, correct? He's give his flesh, means flesh and blood together, he will die. Christ said, the flesh and blood that you need to eat 
is the flesh and blood is the flesh that I will give. What do you think he's talking about? His sacrifice. Correct? I give my body. He's talking about my sacrifice. My sacrifice. Sacrifice. Sacrificial death. Alright? So now, then he goes on. Verse 52. Except, every verse 53, except ye eat of this flesh of this of the Son of Man and drink of his blood, ye have no life in you. So now you see, look up here. Unless you eat and drink, unless you come and believe, you will not have life. Okay? Unless you eat of this flesh and life, you have no life. In other words, unless you come, you come and believe in what? In my sacrifice, my sacrificial death, you will have no life. Are you following? Wait higher. <laughs> This is very consistent with Christ's saying. Unless you eat and drink of my flesh, right? Unless you eat and drink of my flesh, you will have no life. So unless you come and believe in my sacrifice, you will have no life. In other words, it is about belief. What is eating and drinking his flesh? Believing in his sacrificial death. Okay? This is consistent. Consistent. Now, who do not understand? I need you to be clearer because you cannot have doubt in your heart about this topic. Whenever you read this, don't go back and think because I know that feeling. I was a Roman Catholic. For a long time, this passage puzzled me. For a long time, I dare not ask about this. There were some lingering doubts. Maybe they are right because I really cannot explain this passage. But once you learn context, he's talking about salvation. Next, you try to use consistency. Match the words. The words consistently and the thoughts of Christ consistently is saying, come and believe in my sacrifice, you will have eternal life. That is the context, okay? So it's very safe. Now, but what if they argue with you, the last one? They argue with you. Yeah, that's why we say, you must believe that the Holy Communion is when you get eternal life. <laughs> because Christ said, you must eat and drink me, then you have eternal life. So this passage is about the Eucharist. The Eucharist is we sacrifice, we sacrifice Christ and then you must believe that you're eating and drinking Christ. Every time you sacrifice him, you partake of it, you get eternal life. How to argue with that? Sing Yuan, do you understand? Are you following? So they argue with you, sing you in. This is about the Eucharist. You see, Christ is saying, yeah, every time you must sacrifice me. So how? How? Sing you in. How? Every time you must sacrifice me. Don't know. What's the last C? Whether it contradicts any parts of the scripture, whether it's theology or doctrines, right? Right? Any contradiction. Any contradiction. Any contradiction of Christ, we sacrifice him, eat him, get life. Sacrifice him, eat him, get life. So keep sacrificing. Any contradiction to any theology? Which theology? Uh, Sujin. Christ died once and for all for the sins of the world. And, yeah, but he died once and for all, so we, we have to sacrifice him. 
this sacrifice that he made has to be repeated. His work on the cross has been completed, correct? But, but in order for us to maintain our salvation, we must keep taking the Holy Communion. Right? Turn to Hebrews 9.28. Hebrews 9.28. Now let's, uh, let's read together Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28, reading, So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Listen carefully. God says, the theology is theology of Christ's sacrificial death is only once. So you cannot say this refers to the Holy Communion. Can you say that this passage refers to the Holy Communion and therefore he needs to be repeatedly sacrificed? Cannot. Right? It's only once. So once you check with does it contradict? Does the concept of every time we must we must sacrifice Christ. Is it consistent with the Bible? Every time you need to sacrifice him, you need to eat again. Now, please understand, to the Roman Catholics, this is not just a sacrament. It is a sacrifice. I say again, to the Roman Catholics, the Eucharist is not just a sacrament. Every time they come to it, it's a new sacrifice. That's why the body and blood of Christ is broken again. Okay? To them, it is about a sacrifice. So, is Christ talking about his? <clears throat> is Christ talking about Holy Communion here, um, Benedict? Is Christ talking about Holy Communion here? Why not? He's simply talking about how to get saved one time. That's it. He's simply talking about how to get saved. Believe, come to me. Believe in me. Believe in my sacrifice. You're saved. He is not talking about the coming Holy Communion, which will be repeated. Understand that. Okay, so it's not a, a salvation through keep sacrificing Christ and keep eating Christ. Now, please look at Hebrews 9, verse 28 further. Christ was once offered, so it cannot be a repeated sacrifice. And eat him and get saved again and again. Number one. But please know, when is Christ going to appear the second time? At his second coming, correct? But do you know the Holy Communion, uh, the Eucharist is... Here comes Christ. Here comes Christ. Because Christ is coming again. Christ keeps coming. Christ keeps coming to them. It's always about, here is Christ again. The body of Christ. He is coming into our midst again. And we need to sacrifice Him again. Christ's, physically, Christ's physical presence, His flesh and His blood will not be among us. His second physical presence is his second, his next physical presence is not weekly or monthly in the Eucharist. His next physical appearance to mankind is his second physical coming, not in the Eucharist flesh and blood. We won't see his flesh and blood. Okay, so the flesh and blood of Christ will not be on earth until his second coming. Okay, so Hebrews 9 tells you very clearly. So please know, this passage is not 
about the Holy Communion. Christ was not talking about the Holy Communion. Therefore, he is not referring to the bread and the wine of the Holy Communion. But is he talking about his broken body and his shed blood? Yes. But he's talking in the context of his sacrificial death for salvation. One time. He's not talking about the ongoing remembrance of his death. He's talking about actually how to be saved. Okay? Holy Communion is not about how to be saved. Holy Communion is about remembering that we were saved. We have been saved. This passage is about how to be saved. It's not about the Holy Communion. So don't mix it up, okay? Clear as mud? I hope so. Alright, so do not doubt. Uh, um, Rowena, alright? Okay? So just trace the consistency. Christ is consistently saying, eat, not hungry, is come. Drink, not thirst anymore, is belief. It's very clear in that verse. It's very clear. And he's always talking about my flesh and my blood that I'll give. You come and believe in that, you have everlasting life. Eating and drinking is coming and believing in his sacrificial death. Okay? Alright. So, that is one key thing I want to establish and I want to build very strongly in um, believers in this church for the sake of God's truth. Now, Nick. Okay, the rest are easy. Very quickly, we just run through them. Okay, let's... I'll just give you the answers for the rest so that we can finish up. Um, so you have answered question five. Number seven. Now, let's read point seven, please, quickly. Um, one, two, reading. Are you there? All right, let's read. Worthy receivers, outwardly partaking of the visible elements in this sacrament, do then also inwardly by faith, really and indeed, yet not carnally and corporally, but spiritually receive and feed upon Christ crucified and all benefits of his death, the body and the blood of Christ being then not corporally or carnally in, with or under the bread and wine, yet as really but spiritually presented to the faith of believers in that ordinance as the elements themselves are in their outward senses. Now, what is this saying? Very simple. All born again, water baptized believer, we outwardly partake. Look at, look at point number seven. I'll just explain straight from it. We outwardly partake of these physical elements. All right? We are not eating air. We are actually taking these physical things. Now, but what is happening is we are doing so inwardly by faith. And indeed, yet not carnally and corporally. So he said, although you're eating physical things, although you're partaking, you're receiving into your mouth the benefits of Christ's death. You're receiving into your mouth, but you're actually receiving it by your faith. Although you put the things in your mouth, but actually it is not so much your mouth physical reception of this physical thing, but it is all about your faith receiving and feeding, look there, receiving, spiritually receiving, feeding upon Christ crucified and all the benefits of his death. The body of, so understand this, what is the Holy Communion? 
You're eating physical things. But you are by your faith taking in the spiritual benefits of Christ. You're eating Christ. So when people say, are you eating Christ? You are. You cannot not say, I am not eating Christ. But what is eating Christ? Eating Christ is receiving, by your faith, the spiritual benefits of his death. That is what it means. Okay? The body and blood of Christ being not corporally, carnally in. He said, please, I want to emphasize again, the body of Christ is not in these elements. They are not in there. But you cannot say just because the, it is not physically changed, there is no spiritual eating going on. There is a spiritual eating going on. So I ask you this question. No, actually not yet. Now, this, look up here, it says, not corporally or carnally in, with, or under the bread and wine. This is called consubstantiation. All right, so if you see question seven, why is consubstantiation? Consubstantiation is the belief by the Lutherans. Who hold this view? The Lutherans. The Lutherans believe that Christ is, well, they're not Roman Catholics. So we are not Roman Catholics. Christ is not the bread and wine did not turn into Christ. But we believe that Christ physically, his flesh and his blood is in, with, under the bread and the wine. Can someone explain what does it mean? Sing Yun. What does in, with, under? Christ is not physically there. The bread and the wine did not turn into his flesh and blood, but really, but his flesh and blood is really in, with, and under the bread and wine. What does it mean? Christ among the elements, you understand. Actually, people don't understand. <laughs> people say this is, this is a philosophical statement. You, at the end of the day, you still believe, like what you say, somehow Christ's physical body is somewhere, somewhere, la, somewhere around there. It did turn into his physical body, just somewhere there, but not physically. The Roman Catholics say physically, but Lutherans say, no, not physically, but it's really physically somehow there. Both are just philosophical. Actually, one is nonsensical, one is absurd, repugnant to the common sense and the senses. This one is just philosophical. All right? So, um, that is consubstantiation. The danger is you can just quickly return to, return to the Roman Catholic Church easily. It's very easy for them to return to the Lutherans to return to the, common, the, the Roman Catholic Church because it is, they still believe somehow the body and blood of Christ is physically there in these elements. It's just in, under, with, whatever that means. All right? So it's dangerous. Now, but question number eight, how does the communicant receive and feed upon Christ? Re the communicant receive and feed upon Christ by faith. There's no physical eating of Christ's flesh and blood. So it's by faith. Now, what does it mean? What does it mean? It means that you are taking in spiritual benefits. Holy communion is taking in spiritual benefits. Now, what are the benefits? Question number nine. The benefits are the benefits of his death. So what's the benefit of his death? At least try this one. Sujin, what are the benefits of Christ's death? Every time we come to Holy Communion, we are partaking of the, we are actually partaking spiritually, we are eating something that makes us spiritually um, um, strengthened. What are these benefits of Christ's death? Strengthened in what? Strengthened. 
strengthened in what? Okay, look. I have to draw a man with big, big head. I don't know. Big mouth too. Another <laughs> monster. <laughs> Alright? Okay, pretend this is me. <laughs> now, when you take, alright, when you take the bread and the cup, it is not physical eating that is being focused on, it is spiritual eating. Because the whole concept is Christ wants us to know we are eating. Eating strengthens you. So there is a strengthening. That's why we call it, it is grace imparted, correct? Holy Communion, grace imparted. There's a grace imparting. What is this grace imparted? It is the benefits of Christ's death. How are you strengthened? What are the benefits in Christ's death? Assurance of salvation. Right? Because Christ's death is once and for all, is completed, so assurance of salvation. What are the benefits? I'm just listing some. What are the benefits? Forgiveness of sin. Right? When we confess. When we confess and repent. What else? Reconciliation. Right? Keeping us from sin. Because we love Christ. As we are reminded of his death, our love is rekindled again. Correct? Why do you, why do you all have... Why do you all have um, anniversaries, wedding anniversaries? Your love rekindles. So this is a monthly anniversary with Christ. So many, many things. You, you are again being strengthened to know that because I am saved, I'm really saved. I'm avoiding hell. I won't go to hell. And therefore, it drives me to live for my Savior. It's, it's worth it. I die, I die. It's okay. I get so poor until I'm nobody. It's okay. I'm going to heaven. The assurance of salvation strengthens your Christian walk. Understand that. There's are people like, like uh, um, people can say, I die, I die. That's it. What are you willing to die for? This, this Sunday's message. Forgiveness of sins, reconciliation. This is, the most, this is the most wonderful thing. You know that you have sinned, you have fallen, you know, if there is no forgiveness, but you remember that Holy Communion is Christ's death and there is forgiveness, there is a great motivation to repent and stop and know that you can start afresh, start clean with Christ. Isn't that very motivating? It's very motivating. You, you won't like, oh, since I'm sinful, I think I'm useless, Christ won't receive me anymore. No, no there is forgiveness. When we repent and confess, start fresh as if we have not sinned and live for him again. So there is great, great benefits that, that strengthens us, right? Love for Christ, we've spoken many times, right? So, so the Holy Communion is a time where you are really partaking of spiritual benefits. But let me ask you, Benedict, when will these spiritual benefits not occur? When you keep sinning, all right, we talk about that after when we keep sinning, and when we don't dwell on these things, when our thoughts, you know how to draw thoughts? 
right? Thoughts, like my saliva coming out. When your thoughts are not on these things, there is no benefit. So don't sit there and wonder in your mind, all right? So very quickly, I really want to finish this because we need to start a new chapter next round. Now, next one is, so these are the benefits. Let's read point eight. Can we read point eight? Although ignorant and wicked men receive the outward elements of the sacrament, yet they receive not the things signified thereby, but by their own unworthy coming thereunto are guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord, to their own damnation. Wherefore all ignorant and ungodly persons, as they are unfit to enjoy communion with him, so are they unworthy of the Lord's table and cannot without great sin against Christ, while they remain such, partake of the holy mysteries to be admitted thereunto. So it simply says that if you're an unbeliever, make sure you don't take it. There is damnation, as we read before. Now, but I want to answer this. Just now we read, anyone who partake of the Lord's Supper unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, right? What is unworthily? Ben, I can't. What is unworthily? Alright, unbelievers, unworthily, or unrepentant, a Christian who does not want to leave a particular sin or sins, a Christian that does not also approach the Lord's table with a very reverential and careful view of the sacrament that is unworthily, right? A reverential, careful um, view of the Holy Communion. That is wrong. Right? Must, have, must regard it with significance. Must regard it with significance. So don't just come for Holy Communion um, um, without preparation. Um, okay? So that is unworthily. Now, next one. Can you feel, should you feel, you see, um, I lived a very good life this week or this month. I did not sin knowingly. Now I'm worthy to take. Should you feel that way? Now this worthy is also related to, we are, none of us are worthy to partake of the Holy Communion. We are only worthy because of the finished work of Christ. Understand that? But at the same time, you can't say, oh, because Christ died for me, so I can keep sinning. Then you do not approach the Lord's table with reverence. You do not examine yourself. Now, next one. What are the warnings of partaking unworthily? Damnation. How should it help you? Damnation. I better be very careful. I better deal with my sin. That's why the Holy Communion imparts grace. Does it impart grace? Does, that, does any dad here say, if you come back and I found out that you lied in school, I'm going to cane you? Huh? Do you think there is a good motivation for the child not to tell lies in school? Because when you come back, the dad is going to say, do you lie in school? Is God saying there will be damnation a bad thing for the believer? No, it is a way of the father saying, I will chastise you. Now, what are the chastisements? Weak, sleep, right? The chastisements are? What happened? What are these damnation? Now, does it mean, okay, if you partake of the Holy Communion, you're a true believer, you will end up in hell? Because it's damnation, right? 
Is it in hell? Now, what is this damnation for the believer? You do not lose your salvation because you partake of the Holy Communion, not carefully one week, and then you're in damnation, you're going to hell. Now, look at verse 29, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Um, Eat and drink damnation. And then verse 30, For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. So this is a physical damnation. You fall sick. You become physically weak. Many sicknesses, or troubles, accidents, difficulties, and then some even die. Right? Physical damnation. So don't fool around with the Holy Communion. I've known of very serious cases. All right. So this damnation. But unbelievers is eternal damnation. Now, does an unbeliever go to hell, damnation, because he partake of the Holy Communion? Ellen? Sure. It includes, this is a terrible sin. It includes, but they go to hell because of any other sin. So partaking of the Holy Communion, they just come, I want to eat. All right? It is a damnable sin for them also, just like any other sin. Okay? So know that. Please let it be a great motivation for us. Okay, now what about this? So, what's the warning? I should prepare for Holy Communion. Understand that. Okay? Now, what, should, what will happen? What will happen if you know of an unbeliever partaking of the Holy Communion? What should you do? So, for example, you invited your friend. Your friend is not a believer. And then the deacon walk up, and sometimes it's very difficult. We cannot stop people from other churches partaking Holy Communion. You walk up, the deacon say, Are you a believer? Have you been baptized? And then these people like to eat. Or they just want to take and say, yeah, 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 yeah. But you know your friend is not. What should you do? Stop them. Okay, sometimes if the deacon asks, they don't know, but you know. No, he's not a Christian. He's not a believer. So you should, you should just come up and say, no, he's not a believer. All right, so we should stop. But by and large, the deacons, they know what to do. All right, so that is Holy Communion. I hope that you remember one last thing and then we'll close in prayer. And I wonder if anyone remember this last thing. Because if we don't, then we cannot go home tonight. And the question is, whenever we come to Holy Communion, four areas, four S. Actually, I keep telling you, use your BBK book. You can write into your BBK book. What are the four S? Four S's in Holy Communion that we must always ponder upon. Four S's. Who wrote it down? Put out your hand, hurry up so that we can go back. Okay, Phyllis, what are the four S's? First S, when we come to the Holy Communion, we have to ponder upon the sacrifice of Christ. Second S, the spiritual benefits in Christ, which we talk about. That is what strengthens your faith, increase your work of grace in you. The third one, Service that we owe. Every time we think of Christ's death, we don't we belong to him. We owe him service. What's the last S, Ben? Saints in communion. Holy communion is not you just taking Holy Communion and between you and God. It's your family of Christ taking it together. Alright? So the four S must be in the foremost of your mind. 
What's the last one? You cannot come and take Holy Communion. We are saints having communion and yet intend fully to disrupt, destroy, corrupt your family. This is saints in communion. So the last one is, the last two we always forget. Service that every time of Holy Communion, I owe God service. I owe Him everything in my life. It re- reminds us. Otherwise, no work of grace. The last one is, these are the saints in communion with Him. I only do them spiritual good, not evil. Alright? So Holy Communion must remind us of these four things. If not, there is no grace imparted. Let us pray.